edition of Your Adrenal Fix. My name is Dr. Joel Rosen, and I'm here with Dr. Eric Balkovich. Uh, I want to thank you for being here, Eric. Tell me, uh, thank you for being here, first of all. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. So, so today, Eric, I wanted to talk to you and use your expertise. You know, I've known you way back from a group of doctors that we belong to, but I also um, am really proud that you are the MC and sort of the right-hand guy for Dr. Ben Lynch and his ShyCon conferences, which, you know, I learn things all the time. And so I'm really honored and privileged that you're here today. And you gave a couple of outstanding lectures last uh, uh, conference on the role of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So I wanted to get your input on how that relates to adrenal fatigue. Well, essentially when we're talking about, first we'll start with what, what is small intestinal bowel overgrowth. Um, SIBO is this term that we, uh, the acronym we use for small intestinal bowel overgrowth. And essentially there's a small amount of bacteria that's commonly found in the small intestine. A lot of people think that it is uh, a sterile environment, but there is a small amount of bacteria that should be in the small bowel, not nearly the amount that should be in the large bowel. And um, I like that term, probably a better term is CMO, which is uh, small intestinal microbial overgrowth because yeast and bacteria have been found to be problematic in the small bowel. When it comes to stress, stress changes the gut flora, changes the gut physiology. Um, and so when there's chronic stress on the system, uh, it dysregulates the bowel. So when we talk about stress as a trigger, stress is really ultimately the trigger for almost every chronic condition we have. Um, and I'm sure you've probably talked about this a bit. Stress comes in multiple forms, physical, chemical, uh, emotional, which is huge, and microbial stress. And when stress occurs, that triggers something in the body called uh, an inflammatory process or uh, something we, we call in the business the cell danger response, which maybe you've talked to uh, your listeners about in the past. And once you kick in the cell danger response, then cell physiology changes. And it's, it is not a abnormal process, in my opinion. The cell danger response is actually a totally normal opinion. And once you kick that process in, Physiology changes. The body has to try and adapt to whatever that threat or stressor or trigger is. One of those systems that kicks in quite a bit is the adrenal system to try and upregulate um, hormones from the adrenal system to kind of deal with that stress response. Uh, and that can, in time, uh, in, the, in the short run, can be great to increase the cortisol and, and the catecholamine response from the adrenals. Um, but if it's a prolonged stress, then we start to see changes in adrenal function and we can actually see uh, two real big things occur. One is, is that uh, cortisol starts to get deactivated, which lends people to feel many times fatigued and think that they don't have cortisol. When they have cortisol, it's just being deactivated. The other thing that occurs is that adrenal hormones just build up and create a number of problems um, one, because they can't be metabolized, we can talk about thyroid physiology and the role there, but chronic upload of, of the adrenal system uh, really causes us to become more insulin resistant, which creates tiredness, fatigue. Um, it compromises our, our ability to burn fat efficiently. So we just can't generate energy. And that is one of the main reasons that we have this chronic stress response or chronic fatigue when we have chronic infections like something like SIBO. Awesome stuff. A couple of distinctions there is just sort of that 
deactivating term that you use, um, which, you know, I think one of the things that sort of off sort of script that I wanted to talk to you about today as well is, you know, just for our thyroid listeners, and I always kind of joke around and say like the thyroid and the adrenals are kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, you know, they're sort of always sort of in each other's business. And people always want to know, is it the thyroid? Is it the adrenals? Is it the adrenals? Is it the thyroid? And really at the end of the day, it's that cell danger response that deactivates things. So Eric, give me an idea, especially for you, because you've taught me this. Um, we look at ratios a little bit differently. I know with thyroid levels, we look at um, TSH and people always get upset and that that's the only test on there. Um, but then they insist that T4 and T3 get on there. Um, and even if they're lucky, thyroid antibodies get on there too. But you've talked about some ratios, you know, specifically, you know, total T3 to reverse T3. Uh, or, you know, so tell me about some of those ratios and what the listeners should be looking at as in terms of, oh my goodness, I've never heard that before. So what would that be? So, yeah, I think one of those things we got to differentiate, and I do this quite a bit on, uh, on my, one of my websites, the Thyroid Problems Doctor website, and on, and on a lot of my thyroid videos, is we have to distinguish the difference between glandular hypothyroidism, where the gland can't produce enough thyroid hormone, and cellular hypothyroidism, which is that there's not enough T3, the active hormone, um, getting into the cells. So when we look at just TSH and T4, what doctors are really looking at is the pituitary gland. Is the pituitary gland getting saturated with T3? And if it is, TSH can normalize. But that doesn't give us the state of what's happening in the peripheral cells. And under different stress conditions, um, there's something called thyroid allostasis in which thyroid physiology changes. TSH, T4, T3, reverse T3, all these values change based on the stress response. And what happens at the cellular level, when there's this stress, this cell danger response, whether it's emotional stress or physical stress or microbial stress, and the cell danger response kicks in, what happens is, is that there are different enzymes within the cells. They're called deidinase enzymes, which convert T4 to T3, T3 to T2, T4 to reverse T3. And so when we're in, in homeostasis and everything's good, the primary thing is T4 is shuttled into the peripheral tissues. The T4 is converted to T3. The T3 binds with the, the receptor in the nucleus, and that stimulates metabolism. When there's a stress response going on, and it may just be somebody who's emotionally distraught chronically, they got a bad marriage, bad relationship, bad finances, that stress response increases an enzyme called deidinase 3. And when you increase deidinase 3, as the T4 is shuttled into the cell, instead of being converted into T3, it gets converted into reverse T3 and kicked back out of the cell. So instead of looking at TSH and T4, those values could be totally normal, but the person still has hypothyroid symptoms because they're not getting sufficient thyroid hormone into the tissues. And docs in conventional medicine just don't look at that because really what they're looking at in most cases is a disease state. They're waiting for the disease state to occur. So if we look at T3 and we look at free T3, these are the active hormones that are, it's, it's the active hormone that's really in the blood. And then we look at reverse T3, we can kind of get an idea of what's happening to the T4. Is it getting into the cell and potentially being activating uh, metabolism or is it being converted into this reverse T3? So what we like to do is take a look at T3 
And it's interesting to note, T3 and, and free T3 rarely ever leave lab normals because there is a, the body fights to maintain normal levels of T3. So when we look at functional ranges, which are those narrower, tighter ranges, we may see them out of that functional range, either high or low, but lab ranges will rarely ever leave the lab range. So that's why docs don't look at it. They look at it and they say it rarely ever leaves lab range. It's not an important marker, but it's critically important when we think about what's happening at the cellular level. So we can take T3 and we can take it and put it in a ratio with reverse T3. So T3 divided by your reverse T3 in health, that number is typically greater than 10. When you have cellular hypothyroidism going on, lack of T3 at the receptors, that ratio is gonna be less than 10. If you have a free T3 level done, then you can take free T3 divided by reverse T3, and that number in health is greater than 0.2. When we have a cellular hypothyroidism going on, it's gonna be less than 0.2. And I think it's important to note that hypothyroidism is the result of lack of thyroid hormone in the peripheral tissues. That's why people have symptoms. That's why they have dry hair. That's why they have dry skin. They're thinning hair. They're tired. They're fatigued. These are the reasons why when you look at a cortisol test, their cortisol levels are really high because they can't metabolize cortisol because the T3 is not in the cell. So docs somehow you could have all these hypothyroid symptoms and your doctor would say, well, it sounds like you have a thyroid problem. Let's run your TSH and T4. And they'll say, well, you don't have a thyroid problem because those are normal. And that's not a, a class. The only time you can really use TSH and T4 is when the person's in homeostasis. Okay. Or in, in, in layman's terms, when there's no stress on their system, right? When they're healthy and there's no stress, who's coming into your practice with hypothyroid symptoms, who's optimally well? Nobody. Right. And so one of the papers I just read said that you can use TSH as a marker of thyroid disease when there's homeostasis. Well, if there's thyroid disease, there isn't homeostasis, right? Yeah. So it's, this, it's kind of this mixed bag of stuff. So it's really important to understand that hypothyroidism, the symptoms of hypothyroidism are lack, is the result of lack of thyroid hormone in the cell and it may not be reflected by TSH, it may not be reflected by your serum T4 or T3, but if you run reverse T3 and do those ratios, then you can see that piece of the picture that's missing. Right, and at the cellular level. And so it's a good segue too, because Eric, one of the brilliant things that you talked about last at your, at your Shikon was um, in terms of the recurring nature of the SEMO or the small intestinal microbial overgrowth processes where we see them all the time as doctors where, you know, they had a candida overgrowth or they had an H. pylori infection or they had, as we call it, dysbiosis. Um, and it always seems to come back. And so, you know, that's really what I'd like to talk to you about as well. And, and obviously the role of stress and the adrenals in that. But Tell me those, you know, those, you know, our listeners, the two, sort of the two areas, how you've simplified it. And I don't think it's oversimplification at all. I think it's a great way of looking at it, um, where those two things have to be on board. Obviously, there's a bunch of characteristics under those two things. 
but maybe speak a little bit about that, Eric, and so that those that always do have these things reoccurring, which is almost every single person I see, um, you know, and they're dumbfounded. And as you've mentioned, they're looking for that secret snip on the gene on the gene pool as to, okay, here's the secret supplement you've been missing out on, on top of the 27 other things you've been taking. So let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. So when we talk about SIBO, this recurring GI infections or overgrowth, uh, one of the big problems originally was the idea that we could just, if we identified an infection, we could starve it, then with uh, remove the food, remove the, the fuel for the organisms, then kill it with an antibiotic, and then re-inoculate with new bacteria. But the problem is, is that the environment never changed. So if the environment didn't really change what allowed the infection to grow in the first place, then why wouldn't it regrow, right? And so foundationally, we have to get back to, okay, is there an innate immune system in that small bowel that is no longer there to keep the bacteria in check? And that's what I, where I really think the issues are, is that we've lost that innate, innate immune response there that normally would detect the amount of bacteria, keep it in check, and not allow it to overgrow. So it's a complex issue. When we talk about adrenals and stress, those things go together because if there's chronic stress, you've got chronic change in your gut flora, you've got downregulation of the vagal nervous system, which really compromises motility. But if we start at the top, why would somebody, what controls the, the immune system in the GI tract? And primarily, uh, it is two things. One, and, and really focuses on, on something called bile, which is released from the liver and the gallbladder. And bile and enzymes from your pancreas have direct antimicrobial effect in the upper part of the small bowel. So directly, every time you eat and food moves from the stomach into the small intestine, if things work appropriately, then there's a proper secretion of bile acids and pancreatic enzymes that kill bacteria and keep it in check there. If that one in the lower part of the small intestine, those bile acids are absorbed and they stimulate part of the immune response at the lower part of the intestine to have an indirect effect on keeping bacteria in check. But biophysiology and pancreatic enzyme secretions become a primary factor in keeping SIBO from coming back. Because if you see bile acids and bile secretions in the pancreatic secretions, but especially the bile secretions are like, like soap. They kind of clean the small intestine to keep it in check. And if you lose that, the bile secretions, then you don't have that ability to keep that small intestine clean and bacteria can move up from the large bowel into the small bowel and just overgrow on the food. If we take that a step back, one of the, there's two things that we can tie into that. Definitely stress plays a major role because when we have stress, then we have this cellular hypothyroid state going on. And when we have hypothyroidism at the cellular level, then we can't make stomach acid. And if we can't make stomach acid when we eat our food, then that food forms this chyme, this kind of mixture of stuff. And the release of bile and pancreatic enzymes are dependent on the level of acid coming from the stomach into the small bowel. So if somebody's got chronic stress, they have they induce cellular hypothyroidism, they start to lose the ability to make stomach acid. 
So that's key. The second thing that's really important, and along with, is that you also need optimal thyroid physiology at the cellular level to make appropriate amounts of bile and bile physiology to work appropriately. So stress keeps coming back. And you see that we've got about 50% of the U.S. population on reflux medications for a condition that they're really being kind of mistreated for. And if they're on stomach acid medications, it creates a multi-pronged problem because if you take stomach acid depletion medications, yes, when you reflux, the reflux won't burn your esophagus, but you're still refluxing. You've decreased the acid in the stomach, therefore you've decreased the innate antimicrobial capacity. You decrease uh, bile formation and you decrease pancreatic enzyme secretion, and now organisms can just overgrow. And then the next piece of that puzzle is, as you, if you don't break down and digest the food appropriately, now the food is just kind of sits there and bacteria can start to ferment it and work on it. And then you've got tons of food for the bacteria. Stress, another role of stress, when you have lots of stress, you have this uh, upregulation of the sympathetic nervous system, which inhibits something called the parasympathetic nervous system. And the vagal nerve is key to that. And when you have upregulation of sympathetics, you have downregulation of the vagal response, you reduce what's called the migrating motor complex. The bowel just doesn't move the way it should. So the longer food sits in the GI tract, the more time bacteria has to act on that food, and you can wind up with overgrowth. If we tie back into the thyroid physiology again, you need optimal cellular thyroid physiology for the bowels to move appropriately. So when you lose cellular physiology, and especially the, the level of thyroid hormone within those cells, you reduce bowel motility. So again, slowed bowel motility leads to overgrowth, okay? It is, it's like a vicious feed forwarding cycle that, you know, you know it sort of, it activates, you know, uh, this, this uncontrolled snowball effect of um, decreased motility, decreased antimicrobial action, uh, and then it just sort of feeds forwards and, and continues to reoccur. So I guess the obvious question would be for the listeners is, well, what can I do about it? Should I get more on more antibiotics? Should I get on more, you know, Benadryl and antihistamine? Should I get on more um, uh, antacids? Um, or what, should, what can I do? Obviously, those are three things that are going to help that whole feed forward system, you know, go out of control even more. Um, but what would you say to the average person that, you know, has 28 supplements on their docket and it's not like they're, you know, so what would they do for that? So the first thing you do is take a bunch of those supplements and stop taking them. So you, typically when somebody comes to me with their bag of supplements, uh, we start from scratch and they got to start with foundational things. Um, definitely, we've got to work on key factors. Definitely, if they've got a diet that is uh, focused on processed foods and processed sugars, we want to clean that up. So we want to put them on a whole food, low, low processed food diet. Um, that's step one. Two, we got to work on sleep. And th these things aren't sexy. <laughs> I mean, but if you don't sleep well, and I'm sure you've talked about this from an adrenal fatigue standpoint, if you don't sleep well, you can't heal. The body heals when we get into our deep sleep. And so we've got to work on sleep patterns. We definitely want to work on emotional stress because if they're emotionally stressed out, 
that becomes a problem. We work on breathing issues. Those are all things that are easy and free. But once you start working on the dietary aspect of it, the next thing to do on your own is definitely you have to, I would definitely recommend that you work with a, a functional medicine practitioner to help you through this process. But you want to start with the basics of stomach physiology. Do you have appropriate stomach acid production? If you do not, um, and you can, we can see that on functional te lab testing, uh, then you have to support that. If you are, uh, the next piece of that puzzle is, do you have appropriate biophysiology? If you don't have appropriate biophysiology or if you've had your gallbladder removed, you have to support that process. Um, the third piece of that is making sure they have, have appropriate pancreatic enzyme secretions. So one of the first things I do for my patients is definitely we do a, a good stool ecology test. Right now we use a test uh, called the GI MAP test. I, I think you're probably familiar with that test. Yep. Um, and that test gives you a ton of information regarding types of organisms that are overgrowing. It's primarily the colon, but we can get some information from that. It also has markers of biophysiology, which we can also pick up some of those findings on general lab tests. Um, and then it gives markers of pancreatic enzyme function, uh, gluten intolerance, and GI inflammation. So we've got to get into the gut, change the diet, work on the lifestyle factors, and then we start to support the things that they're not doing well with. And that is stomach acid production, bile secretion, and pancreatic enzyme secretion. And then we can start to work on, okay, now we've, we want to start to try and eradicate some of that overgrowth. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a slippery slope because we don't have five hours to talk about it. But, you know, then we get into the whole methylation component of, you know, where their susceptibilities are, how good are they making some of those ingredients for uh, necessary biofunction. And I really believe at the end of the day, Eric, my big theory is, is that all cell membranes are oxidized, um, that we lose epigenetic control. Um, and then there's no way for the mitochondria to know what the heck's going on outside there. And, you know, um, but, but the whole point is, is that um, I really feel that um, that whole methylation component is important. So I guess in, you know, in sort of an abbreviated way, tell us why it's more than just MTHFR and tell us why, um, you know, um, where the overlapping um, candida growths, or reactive oxidative species, or cell danger effects, or TNF-alpha, or all your you know, cytokines, why those really make an important difference with um, all the other enzymes, um, and, and how you would go about using that as sort of a roadmap um, to know where some of their congestions or weak links are that you would do a t more targeted advanced approach once those basics were taken care of. So I think what you're getting at is if we take a look at, say, the chart behind you, right? If we have somebody who's 23andMe and we get their genetic SNPs and we get a, a, a genetic report, what we want to use that genetic report to do is to find out where they may have some genetic compromise, right? And, then, and that, that every year that, that, that map gets bigger, unfortunately. But one of the biggest things I try and stress to the patients that I take care of, and I'm sure you do the same thing, is that the genes are just an indicator of where things may go bad, right? Um, because you had those genes your whole life, but there are things that can inhibit those genes from working well beyond MTHFR. And there are uh, 
cofactors that are important to make those genes work. Now, one of the things that most people want to know is, okay, I have this gene SNP. What do I just need more B6? Do I need B5? You know, B whatever. Do I need B12? Do I need folate? Do I just need more magnesium? And I don't necessarily think that that's the solution most times. What's interesting with the body is, is that the body will do with those micronutrients what it feels are the most important. Um, so somebody may look at it and say, well, I have a CBS SNP and I need to get more B6. Well, they put B6 into their system and they feel worse and they can't understand why. And their friend has the same CBS SNP and they put B6 in and they feel better. It's, it's not as simple as that. And when we understand what's happening with this cell danger response, the, the, the cell allocates micronutrients to do what's best for the cell, not best for Jane or Bob or Joe's whole body. And so sometimes when we put things into the system, it doesn't go the way we want it to go. But if we use that big roadmap and we know that through testing that they have B vitamin deficiencies, then we can go right to that roadmap and go, okay, this, this gene has a heterozygous defect. The cofactors look like they're deficient. And we know that they've got infections, yeast infection. They've got upregulation of inflammatory markers. And we can just start checking off which genes have two or three or four strikes against them from what's, what may not be working. And then we know that, okay, we got to start to remove the things that inhibit the gene from working first before we try and force it to work a little bit better. And that's the process I usually take with patients is not to try and treat their gene report, but to understand that the gene report just tells us where things are probably going to bottle up. And those areas where they have the gene SNPs, anything that inhibits that gene from working better becomes a priority. Those are the things we need to address. Right. It's really good. And I guess like sort of the last sort of area I would talk about is, is that it's, it's amazing because you see the patients that fill out like all the paperwork and there's, you know, writing on top of the white spaces and you know that, you know, it, it, you know, unfortunately when the systems are off, then there's going to be such widespread fallout. But the good news is, is that when you do sort of what I preach to the people that listen is the hierarchy of things and not, you know, do it out of syntax where you bring a knife to the gunfight or, you know, you, you don't have as, as much backup to secure the exit, so to speak. So you got to obviously have a certain priority of doing things. But the good news is, is that ultimately as you start to check things off your to-do list, a whole bunch of other things start to fall into place that you, you know, that was a fallout of, of the other things. So I guess the last thing I would talk about, um, which is sort of a, a mixed bag is just sort of tell us why, like one of those fallouts would be within keeping in context of what we're talking about with microbial overgrowth, um, and, you know, cell danger and stress, why there would be this whole component, Eric, of anxiety, mood disorders, um, irritability, chronic pain, um, uh, all of those things that we see in sort of that whole cycle where neurotransmitters and hormones are involved. Um, I know you could go a long way on that, but I, I apologize for the question, but I at least wanted to tie that into the listeners um, where we you know hormone imbalances and neurotransmitters factor into these gut antimicrobial stuff. So how would you answer that? So anytime there's a, uh, a stress response and that cell danger response kicked in, kicks in one of the a couple of, there's a couple processes that happens um 
one of those things that happens is some well let's 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 start with this and so when there when the cell danger response kicks in one of the things that happens is that we do get a decrease we get decreased thyroid physiology and we get decreased glucose transport and use of energy our mitochondria starts to kind of the cell doesn't allow as much nutrients and it slows down the metabolism and that in my opinion happens uh, for a reason and one of those reasons is is that it helps kick in something called autophagy which i'm sure you're familiar with that term and that uh, that term for the listeners means self-eating and that's a defense response so when the cell senses some type of danger response and again it doesn't matter if it's physical chemical emotional microbial that triggers that process the cell kind of walls itself off a little bit and it starts this process of autophagy and by slowing down cell metabolism not bringing thyroid hormone in not bringing as much glucose into the cell what it does is it, st it starts cleaning itself up and it starts eating the internal contents so that way, if there's a bacteria or a virus or a heavy metal in there, it can start engulfing it and breaking those things down. And that's kind of a natural, normal response. The second thing it does is it actually starts to release inflammatory chemicals, things called cytokines, to warn the other cells that something, something there's a danger going on. And when we upregulate these, these uh, cytokines, one of the things that happens to something called... Uh, to a neurotransmitter called serotonin is that serotonin is the clearance of it is upregulated by an enzyme called MAO, monoamine oxidase. So anytime there's an inflammatory response, MAO gets upregulated. So when that gets upregulated, serotonin is going to be depleted faster than it should be and people are going to be depressed. And that is a total, totally normal sick response. Not only that, but tryptophan, which is the precursor for serotonin, gets diverted away from serotonin production and melatonin production, and it gets diverted down a pathway called the kinderenic pathway. And the kinderenic pathway can, in health can help us make more B3, but when there's a stress response going on, it makes more of something called quinolinic acid, which is a neurotoxin. And when I tell people that, they go, well, why would my body make a neurotoxin? Well, one of the things that it's trying to do is kill the threat. So if it's a bacterial threat, that's awesome. If it's an emotional threat, that's awful because there's nothing to kill, but you still get the damage to your tissues. So you get brain fog and fatigue and irritability and mood swings, and you get depressed. And one of the worst things that could possibly happen then is somebody puts you on a serotonin reuptake inhibitor and pulls your serotonin. It may make you feel good in the short term, but when you pull serotonin and don't let it be metabolized as efficiently as it should, that actually inhibits another enzyme that's called COMT and slows its function. And what COMT does is help you clear your catecholamines, your fight or flight hormones. So I call it drug-induced anxiety. So the person's no longer as depressed, but they are anxious. And so they have this kind of bipolar appearance going on. So that's a major, major issue. When you lose the serotonin production, it also slows down bowel motility because serotonin is a major neurotransmitter to move the bowels. So it, it becomes a double-edged sword. And when we upregulate that enzyme called MAO, the byproduct of that is 
there's two things. That MAO enzyme needs riboflavin, B2, to work. Well, if you use up your riboflavin for this enzyme, now you have less riboflavin to do all these other chemical reactions. And one of those things is you need riboflavin to help you burn fat. So it's going to make it even harder to burn fat. The other piece of that is when MAO is working harder, you increase something called hydrogen peroxide. And hydrogen peroxide is a reactive oxygen species. Why would the body do that? Because it helps kill stuff. And we want that to start killing stuff. If we take antioxidants to try and get rid of that while we have an active infection, we may feel better in the short run, but we actually may create more problems in the long run. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I answered your question. Oh, I went it's amazing. Attention. You know, and you can tie back into the whole thyroid thing and not being able to make activated riboflavin and it just becomes a whole vicious cycle again. So um, I guess the listener is sort of shaking their head like, oh my God, my head's exploding. But at the same time, like they really can identify with the fact that they do get that anxiety. They do get that panic. They do get that you know, gut dis up, uh, you know, upheaval, and and they don't know why they continue to not get better because they're taking all these supplements. So, um, at the end of the day, Eric, I, I want to thank you so much for for coming here today. Um, let me ask you this: How could the listeners um, get in contact with you specifically if they you know want to see what you do or you know um, or be able to utilize your services? What, how would they get in contact with you? So I have my office website is uh, chroniccondition.recoverycenter.com. I also have a um, thyroid problems doctor website where they can reach me for. That's where I have a lot of the, the stuff on thyroid physiology on that site. Um, just about every Tuesday we do a thyroid Thursday a short snippet, usually about a five minute video on some process involving thyroid physiology. Um, we do, Dr. Erica Riggleman and I do uh, a podcast uh, that's available on iTunes called the Thyroid Problems Doctor uh, or Thyroid Answers Podcast. Uh, so we do that, uh, probably really have one of those every other Tuesday. Um, but probably getting to me through um, the chronic condition recovery site or the thyroid site is probably the two best ways uh, to get a hold of me. Awesome. And, and pretty much you do like sort of you work with patients in that, you know, functional medicine capacity from um, thyroid to reoccurring gastrointestinal problems to anxiety, serotonin. Um, even we talked about a little bit earlier thinking that there's a great uh, or not great, but an unfortunate um, uh, epidemic of gallbladder sufferers who are not being told the full truth. I guess just in your, just knowing a little bit about you to end off here, where, where's your passion in terms of like for me, cause I suffered with adrenal fatigue and now I'm sort of on the rooftops explaining, you know, adrenal fatigue's real, but it's not really adrenal fatigue, you know, kind of that's what I do. How about for you? Where's your passion? Um, and where does that lie? So, you know, I've, 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 gone through many processes. The primary, one of the primary conditions I address is definitely thyroid physiology problems because um, uh, I've had so many patients and family members and even myself uh, have Hashimoto's. And so I had to figure that process out. Um, I have spent a ton of time addressing biophysiology and, and GI issues um, because thyroid ties into that. And I just kept having patients that would come see me with chronic uh, gut infections and chronic SIBO infections have them keep coming back. 
Uh, it's a thing that I definitely ha have a passion for is, is biophysiology and trying to get people to understand where that, uh, why it occurs, what happens. Um, I'm sure when, you, when, you, when you're looking at adrenal physiology and hormones, you know, there's a tie into excessive estrogen blocking biophysiology. And that can be part of the reason that people wind up um, having gallbladder issues. They're, so it's just so complex. So probably biophysiology is one of the biggies, thyroid physiology, um, but almost anything in that metabolic field, but thyroid and probably biophysiology and what's going on with the gut are, are probably the two of the primaries. Yeah, and there's no there's no recession, unfortunately, in, in those areas as well. I mean, that just seems to be one of those epidemics that just keep getting worse and worse and worse, you know? Yeah, and unfortunately, and, and we talked about this a little bit offline, is that there's so many people having their gallbladder taken out um, and just not aware that they have these issues. And when docs take them out, they just think, hey, that's done. We took out the diseased organ and everything's going to work from here. And unfortunately, those people are never get better because they still didn't fix the underlying issue of why they had the, what caused the gallbladder problem to begin with, what caused the gallbladder to get diseased. We can tie that back to SIBO because uh, in a lot of the stones that they find, they find bacterial overgrowth there. So that can be a role. Estrogen physiology can be a role. Thyroid physiology can be a role. There's so many reasons why that breaks down. Um, I'm actually in the process right now of working with uh, a company called US Enzymes, and we are, we're developing a new product um, that uh, right, we're, we're going to change the name right now. It's called Biozyme, but it is a high-potency sulforaphane product that gives us um, uh, this really potent sulforaphane, which most people don't know what that is, but uh, broccoli sprouts, which are the baby bro pieces of broccoli, have the highest concentration of sulforaphane. And sulforaphane is the one of the best upregulators of, of, a, of an enzyme called NRF2. And NRF2 is one of the major antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and drivers of enzyme function, especially in the liver. And so sulforaphane, the research on it is incredible. The problem is finding a functional and usable active form of sulforaphane has taken about nine months because everybody who said they had sulforaphane didn't have it in a stable form or what they had was a part of the product and it just took us so long. But I really look at this sulforaphane product that we're, that we're going to be coming out with as a huge uh, thing that can help people with chronic liver and bile issues because of what NRF2 can do. It has massive impact for immune issues and autoimmune issues and inflammatory issues. It's such, it's, it, it's going to be an awesome product. I can't wait to get it started. But I was researching for probably the last two years trying to find a, a good product that we could use. We have a couple great products, a product called Biolumin from Apex. Um, we have another product called beta TCP from biotics. Um, and both those products work really well. There is uh, some people like to use something called ox bile to help support gallbladder function. I'm not as big a fan of that for everybody because excessive absorption of bile can actually inhibit thyroid physiology. So we, we got to be cautious with that. Um, and so if we've had things that kind of not more naturally stimulate 
biophysiology and the normal liver enzymes versus trying to put the end product in there, I think we can get a much, much better result. Super cool. Yeah, I didn't know about that with uh, US enzymes. I, I know they developed some of the stuff that I've been using with my patient base with the Krebzyme. Um, I do like the Chlorazyme for those that are really malnourished and can't really absorb too much. Um, but that's really cool. I got to get to the point where I can help them formulate my own line too. But I, I love that idea, I think. But, but at the end of the day, Eric, it doesn't come down to, and as we've talked about, you know, the entire protocol or the entire program is you really do need to, um, as bad as the toxic environment is getting, um, on the flip side, um, our understanding, our what we call nutrigenomic um, utilization of the perfect storm of crazy environmental triggers overlapping with these loaded genetic guns going off all over the place. And you can really do targeted nutritional lifestyle um, and, and, you know, uh, just quality basics support. And really, I believe, and I'm sure you do as well, um, solve the problem, you know, and really sort of keep people in that you know, sort of that bell-shaped curve of, you know, knowing what their triggers and what their susceptibilities are and having them live a life of not needing necessarily the medication, depending on how long it's been. And also, you know, transforming their life to now remembering things they had forgotten about on their, you know, not necessarily to-do list, um, but on their bucket list. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And it, it, when it comes, at the end of the day, Diet and lifestyle create most of the problems we have, right? So foundationally, if you're trying to fix something with supplements, but you haven't changed your diet or lifestyle, you're probably going to be having bags of supplements that you think are helping you, but you're really not much better. So it, I'm sure the people that come see you, the same people that come see me, um, they're looking for an answer. And sometimes when we have to tell them, hey, we got to fix the foundational issues first, or as we work on this, it's not just a supplement that treats a SNP. That never works. Um, we have to get down to address the foundational issues first. Then we can use supplements the way they're designed to be used, and that is to supplement a good diet, a good lifestyle. When people have to take something for the rest of their life, I kind of pause and say, hmm. If you have to take that high dose for the rest of your life, did you really ever address the problem or are you just using supplements the way we typically use medications in this country? Right. And I don't think that's the solution. Although there are lots of people that that is the solution. They'll get their genetic report and they'll say, okay, I've got your genetic report. Take these 18 supplements every day and you'll fix your problem. And that it just doesn't work. I'm sure you've seen that multiple times. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just that they're so close yet so far. And, you know, I mentioned to you earlier, like water is not going to boil at 99 degrees if you're not doing, you know, the right protocol. And, and a lot of the times the right protocol is less. The right protocol is more basic, more upstream in terms of, you know, just getting the, the basics right. So anyways, Eric, I wanted to thank you so much for spending your time. They got um, I'll have links again to um, where they can, you know, get in contact with you under here. And I know you and I got a couple more projects planned together as well. So um, I'm really excited for those. And thank you so much for spending your time with me today. You got it. Thanks for having me on, Joe. All right, great. Thanks for tuning into today's show. 
If you like what you've heard and you're interested to see if you're a good fit to work with our Adrenal Awakening program, here's what to do next. Head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply and book an appointment to speak to our team. Here's how it works. We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, where exactly do you want to be with your health and where are you now? Number two, what are the genetic components that haven't been discovered that are impacting your health? And number three, what are the environmental triggers that may be overlapping with these genetic components keeping you from getting optimal health? Remember, getting your energy back just won't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make that happen. We've helped clients all over the world transform their lives, quadruple their energy, and fix their metabolism, and make the world a better place. To see if you can do the same thing, head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply. I'm Dr. Richard Joel Rosen, and we'll talk to you soon.